We uh, have come to chapter 3, the Revelation, and we begin in verse 14 uh, through the rest of the uh, chapter. This is the seventh of the seven churches, the church at Laodicea. I mentioned last time when we looked at Philadelphia that I, I hadn't really addressed it that much through the first five churches uh, because frankly it it doesn't it, it doesn't apply to uh, to us today in this sense of course everything about those churches applies in with regard to the teaching but I'm talking about how uh, so many believe and I've I believe this that the seven churches are representative of seven ages of the church the Laodicean church would be the church post post reformation uh, up to the ch up to the rapture of the church, the doctrine of the rapture is mentioned in uh, in the Philadelphian church, and so the sixth age of the church is the church of brotherly love, the church of missions, the church of opportunity. The Lord said, "I'll open a door for you; nobody can shut it. And give you the keys to the uh, the key of David." Uh, we we discussed that last time. So, I believe this is my personal belief. I believe that those seven churches are representative not only of seven teachings that, that encompass problems that the church can face, but also the seven ages of the church. And I believe that we live at the end, at the close of the sixth age, and that the seventh age of the church, which is the Laodicean age, is already upon us. That's my personal belief. I'm not going to get into a lot of uh, dogmatic details or, or sources or whatever. Just to say that this is my belief, and uh, I'll, I'll reference that as we go along, to look ahead um, in, in the next chapter of the Revelation 4, the, the chapter starts out with the Greek phrase, metatota. That very same phrase is the phrase that's used by Jesus in verse 19 of the Revelation chapter 1, where he introduces the third and final section of the Revelation. He says in the Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19, he says, write the things that you see. And he did that in chapter 1. John did that in chapter 1. He saw the the glorified Christ, the the King Priest, he saw him. Uh, he saw him in his glory. He looked something like the Ancient of Days, and so this was a new teaching of the church. And then every time he introduces himself to a, of the seven churches, he unveils himself a little more. He gives another aspect of his character and glory, and so we have this wonderful. And, now, and, and the revealing of who Christ is doesn't stop there. It keeps going all the way through the revelation until we see how he reveals himself at the end of days in his, in his glorious second coming and then how he uh, reveals himself as the, as the king of the kingdom briefly uh, in the revelation at the close 20, 21, and 22 and then, and then as the one who delivers the kingdom uh, up to the Father. Uh, but th those times, that time is coming for us in our study. We're not there yet, obviously. But the, the phrase, metatata, 
I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but I want you to be thinking about it because I'm going to be referencing the the final stage of the church, the final age of the church here uh, in the in his letter to the Laodiceans. It starts metatata, and that's, as I said, is used in verse 19, chapter 1, and it says, after these things. So that phrase, metatata, that Greek phrase, which should be translated after these things, introduces the third and final section, which is the longest section of the Revelation. It begins in chapter 4 and verse 1, goes all the way through, uh, especially through the end of, of, uh, of, of chapter 19, and then you sort of have a uh, 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 an ending, uh, a post, a post law, uh, uh, an end of the of the story. But we'll get more into that as we get there. So I'm going to tell you that the next time we come together, which God willing on the Revelation would be Sunday night, I'm going to spend some time on those first that first phrase metatata, because I think in the general text that's given there. Uh, after these things I heard, you know, and he heard this big voice and trumpet and all, come up here. And and to me, to me that, that is the shout for the church uh, and it represents the rapture of the church. I'm going to talk about a little bit next time about why I believe in the doctrine of the rapture of the church, why I am pre-tribulational and pre-millennial. So keep that in mind. And with that in view and knowing that that's coming, it helps us to set the stage for uh, the seventh church, which I believe there's strong evidence that tells us this is the way the church will be at its very end, that the Philadelphian age will be coming to a close, this age of, of, uh, of, of deity of Christ, uh, absolute truth in the scriptures, the age of evangelism and missions and opportunity to go into the whole world. And that when and the, now the Lord is in charge of this. The church cannot control that. The Lord is in charge of this. He said, I got a key and I'll open it. No man can shut it. And when I shut it, nobody can open it. So as long as we have missions and evangelism zeal, we should, <laughs> we should be rushing through any door that is opened to us and we're praying that at the end of this uh, COVID-19 thing that there will be many doors that will open to us, unlike perhaps that we ever had thought about, uh, when, when we can get back in full swing uh, again as the Church of the Lord Jesus. As a side note, I have noticed, uh, Charles had told me that after one of my sermons or one of my studies or something, that I was that in the messages I was being cursed in Spanish. Uh, I don't even know Spanish, so I don't know. I sure don't know what a Spanish curse word is. But uh, but yeah, he yeah, there's a way to translate it online. And and uh, then when Miss Elena was doing a, a ch uh, kid study the other day, this this demonic woman came on uh, trashing Jesus saying bad things about Jesus, and I got all fired up. I don't know if I was in the body or out of the body or in the spirit or out of spirit, but I got all fired up, and I got on there, and I, I just started rebuking demons and all this kind of thing. And the person disappeared. I don't know if God killed her or what. I did a little research, though, and it was from India. This, this blasphemy was from India. So here we are preaching and teaching the Word of God, 
and we're, we're stirring up demons. I like, I like to stir demons up. I don't want them to, I don't want them to, uh, greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. Uh, but it's a spiritual, the, the, I believe we have plunged into a final stage of spiritual battle here with the great delusion that's going on, uh, the lies that are, that are being told, uh, the untruths, the misrepresentation, the misinformation. Not, not, I'm not talking about media and politics. I'm talking about within the church. Uh, what people say, pe- people, some people I've never known say, I know what you believe, you believe this, and they're totally misrepresentative of, of what I believe, you know. Uh, so we live in an age of delusion, and uh, this, this really, this re- what the church is doing now worldwide with a stronger presence perhaps than ever online around the world, if you can, that's, that's one of the prophecies of the Bible. This gospel will be published all the way around the world. Um, so, you know, and we have, we have capabilities within our, uh, built within our computers where we can, we can have the, the audio transcripted automatically and then we can have that transcript uh, translated right in front of us. So the gospel is being published and preached. Maybe at a, I don't know this for sure, but maybe at a at a greater uh, pace and effort online than ever before. I'm seeing I'm seeing all kind of stuff on my Facebook, and these guys these guys. I, no, I don't agree with everybody, but as long as the gospel message is preached, the fundamental gospel message of Jesus Christ. That's that's what we want to hear in these in these days that people can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a to me there's a sad movement from the 6th to the 7th churches because if as I believe indeed these are representative of ages of the church, it would be the next to the last age of the church, a great age of the church which slips into an age of uh of of uh of tepidness, of of lukewarmness. And that's very sad where where the church just becomes inward and uh, selfish and this kind of thing. We're going to talk about that now. So let me uh, let me talk then about Laodicea. Near nearby to Laodicea was the city of Colossae, the letter to the Colossians, and the city to Hierapolis was not far away. About forty miles away was the city of Philadelphia, and there were three main traffic routes that uh, converged through Laodicea. So it it also was a strategic position, and there was great wealth accumulated in Laodicea. It was the residence of the most important bankers and merchants and financiers in the world. Uh, Also, there was a very famous school of medicine there known for its eye salve. Uh, if, If you had eye problems, you wanted, and you had the money to make the trip, you wanted to go you wanted to go to this uh, to this temple, this school of medicine in Laodicea, so that they could apply their very special treatment of eye salve to your eyes. Now, it was also known for the terrible condition of its water. From there were hot springs in Hierapolis, so Hierapolis aqueducts would bring hot water into uh, Laodicea or toward Laodicea. The water in Colossae was cold and good. 
But when the two met and made and the water then made its way into Laodicea, the water was lukewarm, and it was it was not uh, it was not very uh, inviting. It wasn't tasty at all. As a matter of fact, it had a sickening effect on people uh, who drank it. We keep those facts in mind because it bears remembering on into the passage here. So beginning verse 14, to the messenger uh, of the church in Laodicea, write. Okay, now let's talk about, I told you that Philadelphia, the Greek compound phrase meant brotherly love. Laodicea means the power of the people or the rights of the people. So keep that in mind as we consider things going through this study. Right. These things says the amen or the amen, the, the faithful and true witness, the ruler or the, the outset of the creation of God, that the arche, that Greek word, he arche tes Christios to theou. It means that he is the one who begins the creation of God. He's the creator, in other words. So this gives to, this opens the curtain a little bit farther. There's a, there, there are more great things here that Jesus Christ reveals about himself in his unveiling to the church. So let's look at it. He is the amen or the amen. Now, that word uh, is a word of confirmation. It means this is reality or, or this is truth. This is the absolute truth. So Jesus is the absolute truth. He is eternal reality. He is, amen would end a phrase where a person wanted to make an affirmation. Amen or amen. That tells us then here that uh, he, Jesus is the last word in everything. Whatever. You think of it. I don't care what part of the world, what part of society, what part of culture, anywhere, anywhere in the world, whatever. You think of it. Jesus is the last word. Okay, what about school? Jesus is the last word. Well, certainly in church, Jesus is the last word. Government, Jesus is the last word. Uh, business, Jesus is the last word. His word is absolute and unchangeable. He is absolute and unchangeable. And he is the fixed and final revelation of God. So he is the amen. You, can, you cannot build after Jesus. I mean, there's nothing that comes after Jesus in, in the spiritual realm uh, and in the, in, the mighty, in the mighty creation of God. He is the beginner of all things. He is the end of all things. So when Jesus says, I'm the amen, you can't add to that. Now, there, let me tell you, and we'll see this in the Laodicean church, I think, when we think of some of the words that are used here in the language. There are churches that try to, uh, that, that take Jesus sort of in a lukewarm way. They're not hot nor, nor cold about him, but they get excited about other things that are extra biblical. Uh, and, so, and so they try to grasp for a supposed reality that's no reality at all 
that goes beyond or after Jesus. Well, that's certainly asinine. That's crazy. Because here Jesus says, I, when he says, I am amen, I am the amen, I'm the, I'm the amen. He is the fixed and final revelation of God. You're not going to have any more revelation after this. Jesus finished it. He said from the cross, it is accomplished. He sends his spirit, inspires his apostles, sends forth his apostles, completes the canon of scripture, and then the church continues armed in the sword of the spirit having been delivered to us by the power of Christ through the Spirit in the pen of the apostles, so inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, so Christ, Christ is the eternal reality. Any promise that he makes is a fact. It's stable. It's real. Uh, his word is stable. His word is a fact. His word is absolute truth. There is no debate beyond the word of God. That's, that's Jesus. Jesus is the word, and so it reveals him. So apparently this church needed to understand that Christ is the end of all things and that they needed to depend upon him and him only. The presence of Christ, vitally important to the church. Our thoughts, our work, everything about the church is for Christ. It is to, it is to tell others of Christ. It is to teach Christ. It is to preach Christ, to hold on to the things of Christ to the Word of God, which of course is the revelation of Christ Himself. So the church has to seek after Him, worship Him, obey Him, uh, honor Him, revere Him, glorify Him, and treat Him like the Master that He is, blessed, holy Son of God. Well, He's also, if you look here in this passage, He is the faithful and true witness. The word true in the Greek, alethnos, we've seen this word before. It means, it means real as opposed to what's unreal. The, the, the true as opposed to the false. And another, another form of the word means word keeper. He's seen like that. Jesus is seen like that. In, um, in uh, John's, uh, John's gospel, in verse 14, chapter 1, uh, that he is true, uh, you know, that he is full of truth, aletheia, and the word there is word keeper. So he is whatever, he, he, he witnesses to us. He bears witness through his spirit of himself. And when he does that, what does he do? Well, my goodness, when he reveals the will of the Father, he reveals in light of the holiness of God, he reveals us as sinners. Uh, and he, he reveals us in sin and he reveals us in our, in our need uh, for, for salvation. And so we have to come humbly before God. When we're in the presence of Christ, we're like everybody else in the Bible who first saw him in his glorified state. They fell down like a dead man. Peter, when he recognized him after, after they caught fish and all, he said, get away from me. I'm, I, you don't, I don't need to be, you don't look at me. I'm bad. Uh, and that's the way we are in the presence of Christ. That's, that's the way it is. So, so he is the faithful and true witness. And when we're in his presence, 
the truth of who we are, the truth of who God is, and the truth of what God does for us, or in some cases will do to us, if we're not in a saving knowledge of Christ, uh, all of this is reflected in the person of Christ. And then, of course, he's the creator. He is the one who, he is the beginning. He is the engine of beginning uh, of the creation of God. So he's the creator. Uh, now, remember the word, the, 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 the word for the city of Laodicea means the rights of the people. I always talk about meology versus theology or theology. It seems as though just by the name of the church, the rights of the people, and there are, there are, there, there are uses of the singular pronoun in the original text, and it could be that the message, first of all and, and most importantly, is directed to the messenger or the pastor of the church, and then needed to shake him up a little bit so he could carry that, uh, that message to the church. So I, I just extract that from the way the pronouns are used in the original text. And if that's the case, it means that, that he was a little bit wimpish uh, in his appreciation for Christ, and he was a little bit too much in tune with the people and not in tune enough with the Lord and the Word of God, the rights of the people, the rights of the people. Now, this, this messenger, this pastor, he would be responsible for leading the, the Laodiceans out of their, their spiritual dilemma. Uh, so they have, a, they have a spiritual shortcoming here uh, that, uh, that we can even see even further with the language that's used here. Now, if indeed they were, it was the rights of the people and they were demanding their rights and they were, wanting to, they were wanting the church to do what they felt like was important and somehow it drifted away from the eternal reality and the final reality of Christ into worldly things. I've, I've talked to some about social gospel. Now, the social gospel is something that has to be carefully examined. We reach people through the Word of God. We tend to their needs as best we can, but we, we cannot depend upon social activity to reach people for Christ. We depend on the Word of God, the leadership of the Holy Spirit. God, through Christ, is in charge of that whole thing. We are not. Churches can get caught up into so much social activity, uh, cultural relevance of the day, and all this kind of thing, that they begin to look more about what they want rather than who Christ is and what Christ demands uh, from the church. So, you know, we could be looking, and I think personally that we are, looking at such a situation here in Laodicea, a church that is, a church that is willing to, uh, how shall I say it, a church that is willing to accommodate themselves uh, to the mood of the day regardless of the will of Christ and who he is. So he has to introduce himself like this uh, because he is the faithful and true witness and they may have been becoming unfaithful and untrue uh, witnesses of, of, uh, of the Lord uh, and as such an unreliable church. 
uh, a lukewarm church, a, satis- a self-satisfied church. Let's, let, me, let me look on here. Look at this. He says, I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold. Let me say this about Laodicea. Christ had nothing bad to say about Philadelphia, and he has nothing good to say about Laodicea. The contrast couldn't be more stark that is made here. You're neither cold, your works are neither cold nor hot. I wish you would be cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am about to regurgitate you, to vomit you forth out of my mouth. Now this is a, you think about this. This is a church that makes Jesus sick. It nauseates him. The Laodiceans would have understood what it meant to take a big unexpected drink of lukewarm water from their water supply. It would upset the stomach and it would cause a person to regurgitate what he had just drunk. So they understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you are nauseating me. You are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. Now why? Because, hotte, hotte, hotte legis, because you say, for you say, because you say, hotte legis, hotte. This is why. This is why you make Jesus sick. First of all, you say, I'm rich, and I have grown rich, and I have need of nothing. I, I don't know how a Christian in this life can ever feel like he or she has arrived to the, to the spiritual mecca of needing nothing. I cannot understand that. Now, of course, there are times of blessing. There are times, uh, there are times of makarios in the Greek text when you're blessed. But, but to say, but to say you've grown rich, I have, I am rich. I have grown rich. I have need of nothing. I, I, I. You can understand the meology behind that. A self-centered church. I have what I need. I'm looking after myself through this church. I have need of nothing. Jesus responds, do you not realize, and boy, this is strong, that you are wretched, that you're miserable, Can you not see the wretchedness of your existence and poor and uh, pitiful? Uh, Elianos, Elianos. Pitiful, poor and pitiful and blind and naked. In other words, they saw themselves as arrayed in everything they need because of their gold. And by the way, there was a very high quality of gold that was kept in the banks there at Laodicea. So, you know, they thought, man, this is a rich place. We, we have the kind of gold we need. Nobody's gold is as valuable as ours. And, and so with all of this money, we can clothe ourselves. We can feed ourselves. And we can live on the highest plane Jesus says, that's not the case. You don't even see how wretched and pitiful you are. You're pitiful. You're like a, you're like a, 
deranged homeless person and you don't recognize the fact that you need help. Somebody needs to help you. You're blind and naked. You can't see and you're unclothed. This is a stunning condemnation from Christ. So he says here, beginning the next phrase, I recommend you, I advise you to buy gold from me, having been refined by fire, so that you may be rich, so that you may be clothed, and it's so that you may be clothed uh, with white garments and not and might not be made manifest in the shame of your nakedness and to anoint uh, eye salve to your eyes so that you may see. Now this, this, the Laodiceans would have known exactly what Jesus was saying. They're saying we have the finest gold. People want gold. They don't have to come buy it from us because ours is the purest, finest gold in the world. Jesus says, no, my gold is the finest gold. It is refined by fire. Uh, there's something about, there's something about the, the trials of life that purify us in Christ and strengthen our faith and, our, and, and make our walk with him even more intimate and, and lovely and beautiful. These people don't, cannot understand that. They don't see it. He said, you need to buy my... And here's what he's saying. You need to come back to the one who is the amen, the amen. You need to tell this world that there is an absolute truth. You need to tell this world that I am the eternal reality and that there is nothing beyond me. That the world needs me and nothing else and the world cannot provide it for itself. I have to provide it for the world. Now, that's, you see, if the Laodiceans would just do that, then they'd start entering into a trial by fire. But they were too, they were too compromising in their world. They, they obviously, they, they, it was meology and not theology. But Jesus says, if you'll, if you'll witness of me, I'm the faithful and true witness. You be a witness for me and not a witness for the things that you think are important to you. Get away from social gospel stuff and come to the real gospel, the true gospel, where Christ is the only answer. Come to Christ. Trust Christ, and the Spirit of Christ comes in you and then guides you and strengthens you and helps you to mature in the faith. But these people thought they, they didn't need that. But if you will, you'll be clothed, he said, and your shame of nakedness will not be open to people. And I can anoint you with eye salve so that you can see the real stuff, the stuff that, uh, that Jesus has. Now, this would all be known to, I mean, how shocking would it be for their pastor to come back from Patmos and get to this point where he's reading the book of the Revelation. He gets to the point, he said, okay, this is the part that's directed to us. Christ says that we're wretched, we're pitiful, we're poor, blind, naked. That's what Christ said of us. Christ said that we don't have an understanding that He 
is the end of all things, that he is the beginning of all things, and that he is the end of all things. We don't seem to have an understanding of that. We've added other things post-gospel somehow. We've, we've encumbered the church with things that are absolutely meaningless. And we think we are so great in what we do, and we are not. Can you imagine how they would have received this message when Christ saw them as pitiful and wretched and, and poor and blind and, and, and naked. So look what he says to them here, the next phrase. As, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. I reprove, I rebuke, I admonish. So Christ sees hope for some in this church. Be zealous. Now, now be zealous and repent. Repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone should hear my voice and open the door, then I will come into him and will supper with him and he with me. It's unthinkable that Christ is on the outside of this church knocking on the door asking if there's anybody in there who will let him in. It's unthinkable. I, I keep up with... with uh, the modern drift of the church and around the world, not just in America. And I can see so much in my mind's eye about what Christ is saying with regard to the final age of the church. Churches that stand in name only and don't have any understanding of who Christ is. They don't understand justification. They certainly don't understand repentance. They don't understand the basic doctrine of salvation, the deity of Christ, the great triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They don't believe in absolute truth. Everything is relevant to them. They certainly don't intend to seek answers for man's problems in the blessed and holy Word of God. I see so many churches and pastors like that these days that the, the cultural ideas of the day uh, are more important to them in their church and the acceptance and the, and the uh, preaching of those things more important to them than the very gospel itself. I see it today, and I'm sure you do as well. Christ on the outside knocking on the door. If there's anybody in there who will open this door, I will come in, and you know what? We will sit down with supper together. Now, this, this, uh, this, this, uh, this, this Greek word here, dineso, that meso is supper. It is the last meal of the day. Right after the seventh church here, boom, is the great voice that says, come up here. Come up here. So this ends the time of the church. And then it begins the time, well, there's a, there's a picture in the throne room and, and there's a picture in heaven and then the seals begin to open and, and the tribulation begins.
such a church so close to the very judgment of Christ. And Christ said, you don't even know what kind of mess you're in. And then that closes it. But there is the final supper of the day, the final meal of the day. It's like Jesus is saying, you know, the sun is going to set on this church. But if you let me in, we'll sit down at the supper table together and we will dine. We will dine with one another. To me, not long after the rapture is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Talk about that more a little later, maybe. So maybe that's what Christ is saying. The one victorious or the one overcoming, I will give to him to sit with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Shush, to be enthroned with Christ. A kingdom of priests. The one having an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, that brings us to a close then on the seventh of the seven churches. And uh, it gets even better, in my view, in, uh, in the next chapter, the Revelation chapter 4. And if, if God would be pleased, we'll start that on uh, Sunday night. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, The hour seems so late. And it seems in my heart that we are slipping into the age of Laodicea. Oh God, let us be prepared, ready. Let us to understand that our great king and priest is about to call us up and out from this place and give us an unction and zeal and the resources and the open doors that we need to carry the gospel of Christ until we have no more time, until the last of us is saved and you've caught us up together. Bless this nation and our leaders and help us in this difficult time. Bless the Shiloh Church, Lord, and use us always for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.